Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is brought to you by the employee-owned company Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company committed to making the best materials for working artists and is dedicated to working with artists to inform them on how their paints work. Golden often does workshops at schools showing students all the capabilities of their materials. They're located in upstate New York, and you can find them in art stores or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including the MFA, their certificate program, the marathon program, evening and Saturday classes, and a distinguished lecture series that is free and open to the public. The school's internationally recognized marathons are two-week intensive courses in drawing, painting, and sculpture. All levels are welcome to enroll for the summer 2019 marathons. Apply online today at nyss.org. Stephen Westfall is an artist, writer, and educator born in Schenectady, New York, who received his MFA in 1978 from the University of California, Santa Barbara. His first solo exhibition in 84 at Tracy Garrett in New York's East Village earned reviews in Art in America and Art News. Exhibitions followed during the 80s and 90s at Daniel Newberg Gallery in New York, Gallery Paul in Munich, and Gallery Wilma Locke in St. Gallen, Switzerland. An exhibition of paintings took place at Andre Emmerich Gallery in New York in 95, followed by several exhibitions at Gallery Zurcher in Paris. Stephen has been represented in New York by Lennon Weinberg since 1997, and recent work has been exhibited at Kunstgalerie Bonn in Germany and David Richard Gallery in Santa Fe. His works are in the collection of the Whitney, the Kemper Museum in Kansas City, the Louisiana Museum in Denmark, the Munson Williams Proctor Museum in Utica, New York, the Baltimore Museum of Art, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He's received grants and awards from the National Endowment of the Arts, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Nancy Graves Foundation, and the Guggenheim Foundation. This is the second of two conversations that I had with Stephen, and this one was in my studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Here's our conversation. untouched places anymore now do you go around and shoot scenes you know and, yeah. and then yeah because this is clearly midtown right yeah yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes i i use a lot of images that i find uh-huh. you know sourced from the internet or from you know books or magazines or whatever it is and then tweak them sometimes but yeah i use a lot of my own photos for the show coming up in the fall it's all new york city imagery mm-hmm. so it's all stuff that i'm taking yeah. So, yeah, definitely my photographs for this one. Yeah, well, they all have, like, specific, like, that one on the left with the Korean flag is yeah. from Soho, and I was down there. This is a shot that I took before going to a framer in Midtown. 
this was a gate across from the soccer field where I play soccer in Queens. So uh-huh. it's all, you know, personal yeah, places. Yeah, of course, yeah. But they, you feel the city. Brian's know? itinerary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, the reason why I brought up Cottingham is, is that for decades, uh, he, his image was, you know, in perspective, as you've got here, and with the Korean flag, the vertical sign. Yeah. Um, you know, against the diagonal plane right. of, uh, or the, you know, which becomes, you know, on the a kind of a trapezoid on the, uh, on the picture plane. Yeah. Um, that's not something that's lost on those Japanese prints because a lot of the perspectives oh, no. of those interiors where you're looking through the shoji screens, yeah, they kind of go up like there's a, a converging planes of perspective going on at the same time. Yeah, I'm just sampling all sorts of stuff. I always loved uh, Duchamp's chocolate grinder because it's three point perspective. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the big hard thing is the ellipse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's like an old abandoned. That's in Sunnyside, an old abandoned dental office that's next to a little Japanese convenience store that we go to. Nice, nice. You know, what takes you? What takes you out to Sunnyside? Well, when uh, well, there's a Turkish market. We go there with our friends. Ah. that's across the street from where this is, and uh, we we hit that on the way over to Astoria when we go. There's a soccer field over there that we play at. So, I've seen a lot of this city through my son's soccer matches. And I, yeah, yeah, like places I never would have gone to that I didn't even know existed. I've got what you would you know call a god nephew out in L.A. And whenever I'm out in L.A., uh, I go to a lot of soccer matches. Yeah, um, and uh, see parts of L.A. Yeah, that you wouldn't otherwise see. And uh, in the story, of course, I have the subway station. Right. Yeah, which is if you ever if you ever get a chance to see it at night, it's oh really? It's is unbelievable. It, is it cool? How's yeah. it lit? It's lit from the inside. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you know, on all three sides, it hangs over the street, including under the uh, under the tracks. Yeah. Um, it's funny, I think that's where we left off last time was when you were talking about public art and how that opened up a whole new door. Scale. Um, on one level, to keep it... Um, I mean, the big, the big challenge is to both make it big and make it intimate at the same time. Yeah. But I think in the heart of all of us is a desire sometimes to sort of work, you know, more directly with architecture. Right. And, uh, I mean, I see that in your work. Um, then I think of also, of you know, uh, Al Held with tape, the, yeah. the God of tape. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I don't know if you've ever been up to the Albany Plaza. No, I don't because know. there's a, there's like, there's a 50 foot, Al Held painting up there, um, uh, Empire Plaza in Albany, uh-huh. you know, but under the under, the, under actually under Empire Plaza where the trains come in is where all the enormous paintings are. So there are these paintings that are at the scale of public art, yeah. and in effect, because they're hung in a train station, they become public art. 
there's a gigantic Gene Davis that's got to be, you know, 50 or 60 feet long. And a, it's a lot and of stripes. A, and a Sven Lucan that's 120 feet long. Um, and, you know, and they've got everything, you know, everything, Rothko, Gustin, you know, those are, and those are necessarily more intimate paintings, but it, it's, uh, it's, you know, just a spectacular thing to see. And I think, um, you know, it's a train station, so it's a little more grim than I think we envision um, when, when we uh, are given the opportunity to sort of dream about public art. Um, but this interaction between architecture and, and natural space and light um, and somehow capstoning that or finishing it off or further engaging to some extent with uh, architecture, with painting, yeah. is kind of an apex sort of experience um, when, when one can do it. I mean, the subway station is, is laminated glass, but, you know, it's extrapolated from painting. And, you know, I have a 30-foot wall at UC Santa Barbara, and I did something like a 60-foot wall at, you know, for a year at the, the McNay Museum. Um, and in each case, uh, they are absolutely scaled to um, the entire the entirety of the architectural situation. Yeah. I mean, you can't call a subway station a, a building in the sense that it continues. Right. You know, it's, it's, if it's a building, it's part of the most epic building you know, yeah. on the planet. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the McNay is kind of like an open Louis Kahn-like, you know, breathing light structure. Um, and, uh, and, I, and of course, I think the, there's between abstraction and uh, the pictorial... Uh, and a certain kind of abstraction kind of le- lends itself um, more to dealing directly with architecture. Um, although, you know, certainly WPA murals. Um, have you thought about doing public art? Yeah, I've done, I mean, I've done some. Oh, that's great. Not too, too much, but I've done, I've had an opportunity with the animations to do like the 59th minute at Times Square. And or also your videos too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I've, do, I've done um, Art Miami film a few years in a row where I've had like on that Gary Plaza, that gigantic projection they do. Yeah. So to see, you know, moving images projected that big is pretty cool. Um, and I've done like buildings in Australia. You know, there's been a lot of um, opportunities for the animation because it's so easy with animation. Right. Because you send them a file... And then they project this gigantic thing. But I've also done, I've done murals. Like I did the Rag and Bone murals a few times on Houston Street, and um, I've done a, a couple other little ones here and there. And then I also work with Maharam, which is that textile company. Polly and, and I did wallpaper. Yeah, with yeah. Maharam, yeah. So that's been a, a really cool but strange way. That's like all of a sudden, it's just like you see your artwork pop up. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like a friend just who lives in Seattle sent me pictures of this coffee shop where my image is in. Oh, I'd love to. Would you send it to me? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll try to find the uh, 
right now there's only a a working shot that I know of, but uh, uh, Polly Applebaum and I collaborated on oh, wallpaper cool. for Maharam, and it's going up in some dorm I think in Ohio. Isn't it funny? Yeah, it just yeah, goes yeah. somewhere. And right now, all they had is the construction shots. They had the construction of the dorm and the wallpaper already in. Oh yeah. Um, and they're still finishing the furniture, I guess. So I'd love to see it, you know, sort of install um, a kind of, you know, as pristine as possible before it gets crazy. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, and and I'll send that to you. Yeah, we'll yeah, trade. I'd love to see it. We'll trade images. <laughs> But it's cool that it's out there and people are interacting with it, you know. In this sense, it's a coffee shop where they, they titled the name of the coffee shop after the title of my piece. Oh, that's so cool. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I I love coffee, so it feels it feels yeah, right. Me too. <laughs> but um, it's been they've popped up in malls and in different places and but I do like, you know, people interacting with the work outside of the, the gallery. Yes, yes. And you know, even looking at your out your window and seeing the shadow of the fence and that kind of massive uh, shaft of very light blue yeah. light in a clear sky against, you know, the cement, which is like reflecting sunlight, you know, continually. The light's great because you have reflected light yeah, coming in. It's pretty even. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's like, you know, those photographers with the big white right. screens, Projecting the, the cement wall becomes that. Yeah, this it's, is a fantastic it's, studio. It works out yeah. light-wise, which is nice. I mean, at nighttime, it gets pretty dark, of course. And then, you know, it's... I, I just feel... It, once you have daylight... I used to have a studio that had no no windows. It was just... It was like this, but it was just a white cube, which was great for whenever I'm projecting, you know, like mm-hmm. you're projecting on large canvases or testing out how an animation is going to look projected with sound because it's almost like a theater in a way. But you get used to the constant. But in here, it's so nice in the day that sometimes at night it's a little, it's a little depressing. It's like I want that daylight. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's the then you, you know you have to keep your kids' schedule. That's true. Gonna, yeah, that kind of works along with it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, what I found is, um, well, you're kind of doing it. I have overhead fluorescence, and then I have soft white yeah. LEDs. Yep. The Which, balance, like, and it balances the light pretty, yeah, pretty good. This one's pretty good. Pretty I well. mean, I've I've used really efficient lighting. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Because I used to have those hot spots that are really warm, but they burn out in like a month. Yeah. So these last pretty much forever. Yeah, the LEDs. Yeah, I know. I love them. And then I have my other studio in Pennsylvania too. So. And I have my other studio. In, yeah. In Germany. Well, you know what that's like. Yeah. Have you? Uh, sometimes people say to me, like, how do you do it? How do you work between spaces? I think you just get used to it. And I make watercolors at home. Yeah. You know, I have a little, I have an area of a room sort of dedicated to uh, making watercolors. And uh, so then people say, well, you have, where's your studio? I say, well, I have three studios. Yeah. Um, and they go, wow, that's crazy. And I go, no, they're all really small. <laughs> it's so extravagant, three studios. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have a little office at home where I have like like two extra monitors like this. So when I do work on digital stuff, I'm not staring at a small laptop. Right. I've got like a nice big setup, like a mission control. So style. what are you doing with your with your monitors? I, I'm wearing amber glasses now. Because, I have those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they also change the color. They do. But 
you've got to go with it because um, by the time you get to be 60, you'll, you're set up for macular degeneration. I mean, what's going to happen to young people who are staring at a two inch by two inch screen? I at hope nighttime. they're wearing amber glasses. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I don't think they're. <laughs> I don't. I doubt it. But yeah, I do wear those when I'm working, working on the screen. Well, it'll, like it'll all be yeah. It'll all be. Uh, we'll be harvesting stem cells from Christian babies, you know, for our eyes and for our right. knees. Right. Uh, A supreme <laughs> ocular experience. Yeah. I'm sure some sort of technology will come in to just augment like, our just reality. like global warming. We're gonna all gonna be saved. Right. By the aliens. Uh, <laughs> I heard Mars is great this time of year. There's water if you dig deep enough. Dig, yeah. There's going to be some water. Just get a well guy. Get a, divi- get a d- diviner. Right. Uh, and a space heater. And a space heater. <laughs> They're very efficient. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you can put the solar power panels on one side of the planet. What did I hear? I heard, you know, in full daylight, um, it can get as warm as 70 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, but when the sun goes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're on that side uh, of the planet. Or, yeah. Winter, or, I'm sure winter's brutal. Even shadows in the crevices of yeah. the rocks probably are it's cooler in the shade. Right. Well, <laughs> it's better than uh, Venus, right? I know, I know. I, I thought Venus was going to be a friendly jungle before, you know, we were all hoping that. I mean, I'm old enough, so I remember when the first Venus probe sort yeah. of revealed that it was you know inhospitable to say yeah. the least the toxic ball of gas yeah, that would a, it, kill you it, it, on it, contact yeah at molten at the core right. yeah, you know um so well mars somehow there's a metaphor for art in there somewhere if we look hard enough <laughs> um escape no it's so nice to uh to be talking after being in my studio which is as you can as you know is smaller um and more cramped um, but you know, there's work up and, and, uh, uh, and then being here with this, you know, with this work, which I remember from, you know, I thought long and hard about this work when I first saw it at, at ProTech. Um, and, uh, that's where I saw the video at the same time, I think. 20, like, 20 years ago almost. Right. And now it, and then, um, Amaranger Yohi moved in next door. Yeah. That's so funny. I know, right? So now... He just picked up and... and I'm showing next door after all those years and showing in different places. Showing next door. Which, in fact, Miles' space on 22nd is the old 303 space, which was next door to Protech. Right, right. And when I had that first... So my first show, actually, it was the first two-person show I was in there. I did a painting of that Tomas Demand diving platform photograph that he did, except that I added color and a splash and people in the crowd. And he had a show next door. So it was a little awkward. I was a little worried. That- There's a funny kind of culture, I think, around the paintings you make, which, you, you know, you could say Thomas Demand and photography. Yeah. And those are all flat planes. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, somehow glistening in such a way that there's a volumetric space that this, that's described that's extra color, yeah. um, but but it's very close to being f- just pure flat planes. Yeah. Like you can't tell. And then uh, another guy I'm thinking of is Peter Kane. 
Oh, I loved his paintings. Yeah. So yeah. sad that he oh, it's terrible. passed. Yeah. We didn't get to see what he was gonna, nearly yeah, what he could be it, capable of. Right, right. No, it was it's a grief, but I love the I love the foreshortened cars with that, you know, yeah. the, the hot dog you get when you put your fingers together yep. in front of your <laughs> Uh, well, and his gas stations were really the cool. The gas stations with this, with all the information taken out of the signs, yeah. which is something that I think that really relates. Right. And then I think you're going to love this Robert Cottingham. I yeah, think, yeah. You know, he's, I think I've seen it. I just yeah. can't think. Um, and his I mean, figure. That's funny. That's a, cool that's, a, that's a that's a that's a article yet to be written, or some kind of show yet to be curated. Because um, you could, you know, easily put. Alice Katz in there, you know, perhaps Lois Dodd, and you know, when you, as you move towards landscape, uh, and and you know, she would be the outer limit of brushiness, yeah, um, for that show. But Peter Kane can get kind of brushy, yeah, a little bit, you know, even as he's not giving you the information, right? And yeah, it's funny. The ones that I'm working on in Pennsylvania, a couple of the, it, for me, it depends on what the image is, but there's one that, or two that are a little more brushy. And I think sometimes when people see things in reproduction all the time, they just think it's super flat. But if you get up to this in person, you know, you could see. Oh, you know, you can feel it even in the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, all, yeah. There's a lot of brushiness to yeah, it. It yeah. just, I think when you step back, it just looks like, oh, it's just kind of flat. But I, that's what I always loved. You know, when I saw old pictures, when I was in undergraduate school of, of Kenneth Nolan paintings or Barnett Newman, you know, you would think that they're really flat and then you go see them and there's a lot of brush there. There's a lot of oh, hand. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. John Wesley, you know, a lot of hand in those. But John Wesley would it. be another. Yeah. Yeah. Dark Angelo. Dark had a Angelo. Lot of hand. Yeah. He mixed it. Sometimes he had flatness. Sometimes he had a lot of brush in there. That would be but a that great kind show. Of, well, that's something that obviously that I that 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 is completely you know meaning in my wheelhouse, meaningful yeah. to me, and and to think of the abstract you know people who are ab, abstract painters. Amy Silman once wrote about my painting that uh, this kind of this this kind of mute sort of thoroughness. She said that. Uh, 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 Stephen uh, Westfall was positively gleeful when it was proposed to him. Something like I'm quoting it when it's proposed to him that his paintings are paintings of paintings, the exact size of the painting he's making. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that kind of thread runs through you know everything we do in a yeah. funny way. Um, but I feel like we're a minority, really, when it comes to that stuff, because a lot of people don't care for this kind of that kind of flatness or like a reductiveness or a simplification for some reason i don't people think it's either like insincere or cold or you know oh i think it's it's if anything it's just the opposite it's it's this kind of wonderful realization of what iconic space is i agree and it's american i feel like it's yeah. fair i didn't realize stuart it, davis yes stuart davis yeah. for sure yeah sheeler yeah, you know Hopper in a way. Yeah, those planes, yeah. the light. He's got a little more brushiness, but yes, right. I mean, I can I can name like five or six Hoppers right off the bat that yeah. uh, that have that kind of muteness. Um, but it's a rich muteness somehow. It's a it's not, it's a discretion that leaves a lot of ambiguity, a lot of space to fill in with with the mind. The mind can kind of. Um, 
even just the act of of say selecting a mute facade but making the uh, the space of the sky asymmetrical yeah. and angled by the you know by the, the, the torque of the framing um, changes that plane you know and that simul- you know that kind of miracle of the simultaneity of the plane in a painting uh, being an object and space at the same time it's always going to be sp- here's the here's the thing it's always going to be space yeah so you don't have to gussy it up with a lot of um, Say sentimental gas. Yeah, I mean, I love Corot, you know, and I love painterly painting. Um, but this whole this thing about finding, you know, wringing the space out of flatness is, you know, part really gets to the this the core of of the strangeness of the paint of 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 the painting asserting itself as an object yeah. and not as a kind of wholly imaginary plane. And so, you know, as it's asserting itself as an object, it's also a kind of body in the room. So when I, when I first sort of comprehended Barnett Newman's The Wild, it was, what I realized was it wasn't like a, a, a window or a doorway, even open a crack as a kind of departure. It was an arrival. Yeah. You know, it came into the room. You know that I'm, I'm making the gesture, so you know, because I'm, I'm describing the width of the wall. Right, right. But it's a, what is it? It's just an inch and a half, or inch and three quarters wide, and eighty-four inches tall, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's either seven or eight feet tall. I think it's seven feet. Uh, boom. You know. I agree. Yeah. But I think a lot of people who go to for to look at artwork, they want the Corbet. Like that's what they're they're paying for. In a yeah, way. well, Corbet is good too. I mean, Corbet may have been a, one of us in his lifetime. I mean, right. in a sense, compared, he was very physical. But I, no, I was talking about Corot, who oh, sort sorry, of has sorry, that, Corot, yeah, 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 who has that sort of open, you know, that 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 uh, clawed sort of open hole in the center of so many paintings that you kind of look through. Yeah, yeah. But even you know, I mean, obviously, all these guys knew that there's the image object and it was just really you know I mean Corot on the one hand is is painting those little towns and on the other hand he's painting these mythological scenes yeah so he's got a he's either got a narrative or he's got something in the middle or far distance that he's you know intent on showing us and then but even there he pulls the backdrop up like a stage backdrop right uh, but his his light is so persuasive, um, that Barbizon light, uh, that you know we're ki- we're kind of con- as the audience we're cajoled into sort of filling in the tenebrism or whatever it is yeah. um, that uh, that uh, you know feels more romantic compared right. it feels, but all these guys were. were Killers, yeah, you know, true. They were, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think to be a really good artist, you just, for no matter how sentimental the scene, it's like you can't be sentimental about the execution in a funny way. Yeah, Caravaggio was a land shark, you know. Rubens, I mean, for all the romance of the drawing, he, he's completely an architect. Yeah, 
clinical almost yeah in the, yeah the making of it like angra yeah yeah it would be fun i mean we could spend all afternoon just drawing up the culture of 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 uh painters playing with this kind of flatness yeah and 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 form giving at the same time have you seen the uh, judy Lanier's show at the yes uh pow yeah pow <laughs> <laughs> And she's got that crazy palette too. Yeah. But you know, like those still lifes, those flowers, they're like the blooming onion. At right, the, right. At, you know, <laughs> outback steakhouse. <laughs> outback, you know, you just want to like bite into them. Um, and that's the other, you know, that's the that's the you know color as food. I think the last time we talked, I was talking about synesthesia, and I have this thing when I'm looking at. Um, a bank of trees like up in the Catskills say during autumn and I get these colors and you know I just I feel as though I'm taking an intake and a caloric intake through the eyes it's like food um and uh you know Tebow gets understood that a plane of flat paint was like the surface of a perfectly made tiramisu right right <laughs> frosting on the cake <laughs> uh. yeah I had a I don't know I had a it's funny I had a director like an assistant director one of the galleries I was showing at come to my studio and he was talking to the directors saying yeah I just don't feel with this work that there's like the, the emotion or you know like he wasn't getting the feeling of it and he had that kind of cold but I think if he were able to hear painters who maybe don't come off, like their work doesn't come off as real, like painters, painter, um, air quoting, yeah, like painters' paintings or what, that we still live, eat, breathe, sleep this, you know, all of it. There's a funny story about Burgoyne Diller at some cedar bar or someplace like that at a big table of artists and he was always the quiet one yeah and uh everybody's going carousing carrying on arguing with each other and uh apparently there's this huge bang and everybody's like jumped and looked around at the end of the table there was burgoyne and he had his fist on the table and he said damn it i've got passion <laughs> <laughs> just had to say it yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but i feel i feel Sometimes you feel like wanting to slam the table and saying, you know... Right. Because I think when people encounter your work... Obviously, every artist devotes their entire creative life to what they're doing. So for someone to say... Like, I even give people the benefit of the doubt whose work I see and I feel like... Like, I don't really know if these people are really buying into what they're doing. You know what I mean? There's a whiff of, you know, irony and kind of like, well, I'm just this is like the thing I'm doing right now. Isn't it clever? But at the same time, I still have to give them that they're dedicating months and sure, months and months sure. working on this stuff. Uh, clearly they're invested in it, you know, but I, I have a hard time when people bring that preconceived notion of, okay, this is the way this artist made this piece. Therefore it must assume, we must assume that it has this feeling or they've had this feeling about it. Well, I think for a certain sensibility of, of a kind of controlled of, of, of a flatness 
uh, sort of jump started into spatial interaction in some way. Yeah. Um, contrast um, through contrast or uh, just you know incredible um, you know patient control or evenness. Uh, it sort of draws an, an exquisite tension, and the whole point of that tension is ambiguity. And but ambiguity raised to a level of ta- of tautness. Yeah, you know, like pulling a string really tight. Um, and uh, and at that point, um, you can almost hear the the violin screeching in Psycho. You know, <laughs> like the the level of intensity is yeah. so um, uh, strong and and. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know what to, I mean, I don't want to cast the category of, of viewer into doubt or anything like that. I, I think people come around. The installation has to be persuasive. The space has to be right. But when it is, it sings. Yeah. You know, uh, it would really be fun to sort of do a, I mean, you'll never run out of artists you know big and small but it'd be fun to do a show around that yeah. you know that idea of of somehow flatness being um catalyzed into spatiality while while asserting the object of the of of the format you right. know the rectangle as a body and then as space um I'm all for it yeah yeah <laughs> let's do this yeah I feel like it would be a good one <laughs> Two guys with radio mics, you know, fantasizing about curating shows. Yeah, curating shows. <laughs> it's like that scene from uh, uh, what is it, Boogie Nights? Oh uh, yeah, where Dirt Diggler says, "What we've got to do is get the magic that's on those tapes." <laughs> that's, sadly, that's when they were really like you know reaching at that point. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good movie. <laughs> Great movie. One of those movies, you know, I think it was Billy Wilder said that it has to be at least three, in a good, in a good movie, it has to be like at least three scenes where your jaw is just on the yeah, floor. Yeah. And there's something like six or seven scenes in Definitely. Boogie Nights. That was like Pulp Fiction when I saw it in the yeah, theater. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh my God. Like that, that, <laughs> that had, well, I, there was nothing like that before that. The scene in the rich guy's house where the houseboy's like walking around lighting Shooting firecrackers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, what was the song that was playing? I can't remember. Foreigner, wasn't it? Foreigner, oh, God. <laughs> that made it even more, like if you lived in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That made it even more creepy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, in the 80s, I was living in Santa Barbara. No, I wasn't. I just moved from Santa Barbara. Is it the 80s or was it the 70s? I what guess, that that music? I, yeah, I guess it was the eighties. Early, I think that's early eighties. Yeah, I had just moved to New York from Santa Barbara, um, and my wife at the time lived in Studio City. So Van Nuys, yeah. where all of that is like set, was just like right there. Oh, crazy! <laughs> and then the, it, New York City, and at that time, must have been wild too. Yeah, it was wild. It was. It was. Um, everything seemed more wide open. Larger and smaller. The problems seem bigger, uh, not in the insurmountable way they seem now. They just seemed, it, I mean, it just seemed like whole neighborhoods. You, you now we go anywhere, you right. know, um, and uh, the uh, this sense of 
but um, so I, when I moved to the East Village, um, you know, I guess there was a feeling of being an urban pioneer. I remember having a gun put to my for, uh, my my temple in the Oof. in the doorway of the Fun Gallery. There had been this big <laughs> bus down. I lived on Tenth and A, and there had been this big bus down on Third Street, and you know, everybody was sort of like like an 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 anthill you know all the, the dealers were kind of crawling around the whole east village at that time and uh and uh it, i think if something bad if something if the tragedy had occurred it would have given new meaning to the fun gallery <laughs> yeah i imagine <laughs> <laughs> that didn't scare but you I would, that didn't scare you away from the city no i was so enraged i actually there was two guys and uh, uh, they, I think he just wanted some money because they um, they didn't they didn't go further. But the first guy said, he, "I had a I have I got a knife I got a knife." And I reached around and grabbed his hand. I said, "You don't have a knife." And I went for his thorax. Ooh. And and because uh, I was just in complete beast mode, just just by virtue of being frightened. Yeah, you know. And uh, then that's when the, the the gun was put to my temple. So I gave up my wallet. And, you know, there were moments where a, a week later or two weeks later, I just kind of shuddered. Yeah. Um, but that, I was just really angry. Yeah, I'd imagine you have post-traumatic stress from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, those are that's partly during my own drinking years. So I was, I was more of a limbic creature at that, <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, but... Uh, yeah, and that neighborhood's we, that's where Brownies was. Right? I, I lived above Brownies. Really? Was it still Brownies then? Yeah, it was. The, yeah, it was. What uh, kind of music it was, was called there? The Crow's Rest, or the Crow's? I think it was the Crow's Rest. I thought it should be the Crow's Nest. No play on words. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was an yeah. It was after hours. Yeah, I lived right above it on the third floor. What, uh, what kind of music was at Brownies back then, or the Crow's Rest? Well. Back then, um, you didn't hear much music coming out until about one or two a.m. Yeah. Uh, then, by this point, I was living down in Tribeca. Um, it it became a, it became the after hours thing sort of died out, and it became um, a club, sort like, of trading on its bad reputation. Yeah. Um, and then the music was there, you know, during entertainment hours yeah um and i don't know if it's still there no it changed it i think it well it brownies is yeah. no longer i mean i only know it as brownies and you know it was a big indie rock venue right and i saw countless shows there yeah in the early 80s there. there wasn't a lot of indie rock at brownies it was other places Back. i mean shanae was around the corner and and you could hear jeff buckley you know on a, yeah acoustic guitar you know pretty cool turning the place apart um i mean all kinds of there was you know um abc i mean the further east you went uh, you could find more experimental spaces i just imagine bumping into john cage or john zorn or something you know what i mean like tony uh tony conrad i saw over in the village right was he at the stone yeah Oh, maybe it was. Yeah. I mean, it was a long time ago. But that's when, you know, that stuff was still there. Right, right. 
Uh, and a lot of these people, you know, wound up at Bard. Yeah. And uh, so I would, you know, Tony was a housemate of mine in the summer at Bard, several summers in a row. Um, Did you get to hear free oh, Tony yeah. music? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, and and see the films and yeah everything. And there was a lot more give and take. You know, you never hear people coming down from Hall Walls or from uh, SUNY Buffalo um, anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe we will again. But that that was just coming off that incredible, vibrant multimedia scene. Yeah, Tony. I mean, Tony was a great, great composer. He could be so. Um, uh, sardonic that sometimes you know as a as in a crit that sometimes you forgot for a moment how beautiful his music could be yeah you know he um, uh, but he would push the limits you know oh yeah I've seen some shows where the drones go on you know yes yes the drones which I love I mean yeah. I, I don't know there's something about maybe it's a romantic idea of the avant-garde that I have but I've always loved that sort of stuff you know right up to when when I first moved to the city you know it was it was just when electronic music was starting to go from like techno like crappy like you know pre-packaged techno music right. to experimental you know a lot of German guys and, and Japanese composers were yeah. doing some cool stuff and you would go go see a show where a guy's on his laptop and it kind of blew your mind you know what I mean? It was just like, what, what the hell? What's going on here? But the, the sound would be so loud, it would like move inside of you, and you know, it was. It just felt like that kind of stuff always inspired me. Anything that was pushing something, you know, I don't know what the avant-garde is anymore, or is it just as you get older, you can't see it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I think you know people who come through the avant-garde are probably just more accepting it's very hard to sort of um, you know there's only a certain amount of physical limits that really have to be pushed or transcended you know um, and uh, I think most of those were um, there's um, I don't know what the avant-garde is now. Everything has become institutionalized. I mean, the new museum became an institution of the avant-garde in a funny way. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, and other, you know, the kitchen. Uh, right. Um, uh, and they're, you know, the museums and they're eager to be contemporary mainstreamed it. So it's really hard to do something. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting reading uh, Ninth Street Women, you know, and re sort of um, revisiting the creation of the of the New York School um, yeah. from the standpoint of of the women. I, I, you know, I, I, what I imagine is where we keep discovering is like buried histories. I mean, maybe history is the new avant-garde because we're, you know, we're um, uncovering buried histories. Oh, it's almost uh, like it's like sampling. In yeah, a way. yeah. So, um, like uh, 
black color field and abstract painters in Darby English's uh, uh, A Year in the Life of Color, 1971, um, or the molding of the New York scene in, in, you know, Ninth Street women from the standpoint of the women that were considered second chair. Yeah. And, you know, they weren't. Joan Mitchell was second chair to nobody. Um, And I, I imagine, you know, the discussion of interiority around Ralph Humphrey's painting when you realize that uh, he was kind of quietly gay yeah. and died of AIDS. Um, uh, you know, all of that, it becomes more of a kind of disc- discursive avant-garde. Right. Um, well, it doesn't that, well, maybe not. I was going to say, doesn't it need a, an environment too? And now the way environment has changed, or maybe it's digital, maybe it's online. You know what I mean? Because locale used to breed a certain kind of like if you think of any of those movements, you know, like Lower East Side experimental composers, or you know what I mean, or like um, Ferris Gallery, and you know, I, I don't know, just certain Chicago imagists being of that place. But now it seems like place is less. Because information is shared so rapidly, yeah, across the world instantaneously, I think it maybe decentralizes physical geography, and now maybe information becomes somehow the new locale. Well, well, in that case, maybe social action is the avant-garde. Yeah, and, and to be a painter is to be more of a kind of contemplative. Um, I mean, you can make a painting that inspires social action or maybe a response to outrage like, you know, the 3rd of May or Guernica um, or uh, David Wanarowicz's work. Um, uh, but uh, it's there it is as a painting and it exists in another kind of space. It's still while everything's moving around it and this sort of... Uh, crashing of information waves on the rocks uh, uh, um, the rising tide of information um, um, sort of turns its back and hurries away from that contemplative space yeah. at some point um, I guess what painters do I mean I'm still losing you know, two hours a day to Trump, you know, just trying to keep up and trying to, you know, like find little rays of hope, you know, in, um, in, you know, liberal blogs. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, and, you know, where's the next March? Can I make it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, can I sign this petition? Can I give money to this thing? Um, and that's social action. Um, and then I go back to my studio, and there's there's a gulf in some way. Yeah, I you know one of the great stories out of Ninth Street Women is when when we're on the on the when World War Two starts when the Nazis invade Poland, um, Gorky and some of the other artists stay, have an all night drawing session 
because it's the only response they can yeah. they feel they can you know and of course the art world was so small back then that it was it was more absurd to be an artist than it is now maybe we're going to find a new absurdity in being an artist and the avant-garde is just sort of revels in the absurd because what you, what you and I do really involves patience right. in a very impatient time and yeah. I feel that surge of impatience I want to do this I want to act this yeah. I want to make that phone call I want to you know, no, I'm in the studio, you know, remixing that stupid yellow because I didn't get enough yellow ochre and, be, and maybe a touch of manganese violet to sort of cool it down. Right. And, uh, and, and then, you know, there's explosions in the streets or something. Say, meanwhile, the BQE behind you <laughs> yeah, is like flying by. <laughs> Truck it, falls yeah, off. Exactly, yeah. You, you know exactly where I am. Yeah. Man. So, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know what what comes from that. You know, I I do know that I'm teaching that book to my students right now in, in advanced painting, and they're horrified by the book. They're like they're offended by this idea that that art and poverty somehow go together, which of course it, it's always done, right. you know. Um, and uh, you know, there's just you know, I'm gonna I'm not gonna like continue if this is what painting brings me. I don't have to do this. I'll get a job. And, you know, they, I think any artist can get a job. And, yeah. and I say, yeah, you will. But you might find that that at some point painting is going to, you're going to want to respond to the world, and you know, with a painting somehow. And then that, and then the tears will come. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm just looking at the shadow of this great gate over here oh, yeah, where nice, right? the vertical black lines against the horizontal lines are on every other line. It's pretty nice. As yeah. it comes closer, it blurs too. Yeah, nice. yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah, there's some weird, nice light going on over here. Yeah, and there's a but there's that wonderful sort of uh, syncopation between, um, you know, the the there'll be two vertical lines, and in the center, the vertical line is dropped down on the horizontal bar one unit right and that connects with the vertical with the vertical line that you know that passes through the otherwise line yeah yeah you know the height so these hot these vertical hyphens these dashes are syncopated in this wonderful way and now of course i made a painting like that it's, it's in the national academy yeah. uh, years ago and it's the kind of thing that i i know how to respond to that and right. i was just thinking you know yeah, I guess I guess that makes us kind of crazy on a certain well, and level. And maybe it's it's a breather from the speed of everything else. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it becomes a place where people can go to slow down, even though it's so hard for people to do it. What's yeah? Well, to be able to to be free to sort of notice that and derive pleasure from that is, if we don't have that, the terrorists have won. Right. You know. Uh, yeah. I know what you mean. The domestic terrorists of one. That's exactly. See that one over there with the syncopated. Yeah. You know, once you. That's another thing. Once you paint something, you have this different relationship. You know, like if you do a portrait of someone, like I'll never look at them the same after. Right. It's like stepping inside the structure. Yeah. It's a real. It's it's amazing. Well, this whole thing between figuration and abstraction was going on back in the day too of the of the creation of the New York school. So Elaine makes that you know, she finds herself by making <coughs> portraits 
which de Kooning had like which Bill had moved away from yeah you know all his portraits were, were from a decade earlier um, or more and Elaine so as, just as everybody's like going towards abstraction everybody meaning like 12 people right. um, the Cayman Elaine starts making portraits yeah. of you know herself and her brother um and then Charlie Egan, you know, like you know, other people, and and, uh, and really not forgetting that that in uh, you know the tenets of certain aspects of abs- the formal tenets of certain aspects of abstraction that are de- that were er- derived from earlier painting are still holding. She's got to figure out an all over space for that figure. Um, space for the body and uh, so those paintings are a record of, sort of all those decisions and the crazy sort of warm cool you know blue jeans against the yellow floorboards of a studio of an old Chelsea studio or something or village studio <coughs> um, yeah so I mean one of the themes of that book that's sort of running through it like an underground river is that constant tension between abstraction and figuration. Yeah. Or abstract, I would say abstraction and representation. Representation, yeah. But everything is representational. I mean, that's, that's one totally of the things that abstraction rests on. Yes. Is, is that, that there's, there is a, there may not be one source, there may be a collection of sources, but, or there may be, a, there may be a, an, not even a source, but an analogy that's existing out there that that uh, uh, a metonymy or ekphrasis uh, uh, that where we make this connection to a surface because the surface somehow has color has light has has a dimensionality that's that's projected onto it by some signal that's coming from that surface yeah. that the viewer's picking up like a kind of radio antenna in some way optically uh and uh, you know, at that moment, you know, it's like a lights. The connection goes on. Um, yeah, I have a lot of s- students who struggle with abstraction. You know, there's. I mean, there's the good portion that are totally, you know, get it and understand and, and enthralled by. It, but then that, you know, group that are just like, I just don't understand it it's, right right it's so hard to and they go off and paint like a dragon crying a crystal tear <laughs> at the end of a checkerboard infinity you know with bald head humanoids worshiping <laughs> our you know right <laughs> well at last we've arrived at narrative <laughs> right right thank god for representation <laughs> i try to use uh Mirandi as as like a bridge you know, I think. Oh yeah, Mirandi is yeah. such a great kind of abstract painter, but the most the whole universe is painter. in those bottles too. Yeah. And if you understand the the space of those bottles, you could paint a um, an aerial view of of um, of the financial district coming in over the the harbor. Yeah, because that's the angle that you're right. looking at yeah, them yeah. half the time. I mean, they're, they're, those bottles are skyscrapers. Yeah, you know, um, they're this. You know, they're they're. It's you could you could paint a city looking at those bottles. It's 
and then you realize that scale is transmutable. Yeah. Or if you just look at the the color of the the putty color, you know, it's not just dead putty. It's putty of light at three thirty in the afternoon yeah. in Bologna coming through a dusty studio, <laughs> you know, on a certain type of day. Yeah. And and uh, you know it is. You just yeah. know it. Um, I guess you just need to be a willing participant as a viewer. You know what I mean? Like it, to, to buy it and to sort of engage. You can't make people engage in an image, but that's what you need. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I think paintings are very physical. And early on, like a five-year-old or an 11-year-old sees a painting in a museum if they're brought through and they just get it. They and they want to do that. Yeah. Um, I remember when I first saw my first Gene Davis at the San Francisco Art Museum. I was stoned out of my mind, just escaping, <laughs> escaping from my cohort, uh, my my wastrel high school cohort, because I loved going downtown, going to the museum. Yeah. And you know, this was Vietnam. We all thought we were going to die at eighteen anyway. And I, when I saw Cool Buzz Saws, the name of the painting, you know, in the atrium of the old. SF MoMA, um, uh, and to go down, you know, to, to sort of cut school or, or, or like go for just like an hour in the afternoon once you get out of school, because the, the, the streetcars you take you right down there, um, was the coolest thing. Yeah, and uh, uh, get in with your student body card, and I would anyway. So I in the so the atrium was like this big space, uh, and uh, there was cool buzzsaw, and I thought like. Well, I'm going to die in four years or five years um, and because I'm going to be in boot camp and I'll catch a bullet in basic, basically. basically. Right. Uh, so I'm not going to... There's nothing for me to do. I'm completely depressed. But if I could do something, that's something I would want to do. Yeah. You know, that painting. Or like seeing a Ken Nolan saying, that's what I would like to do. Yeah. Like, you know, I, and I... Th- you know, in... in California people had studios and garages you know the idea of being in a garage like making painting stripes right it was that's the coolest thing on the circles <laughs> yeah 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 why is it there's two breed of people those who come to that and say man I want to make that and then other people come to it and like what the hell is that <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean is yeah. it so- is it something in the upbringing or what? what yeah, like? I think so. I think you know, there's uh, people are are more or less materialist. I think I think it's a, a kind of materialist thinking. I'm going to get a job and I'm going to have a nuclear family, and that's going to reflect my my masculinity, yeah. and my femininity, and uh, logic, logic. Right? Yeah, and I'm going to play the game right, and the world's going to treat me fair, and and uh, you know some demagogue isn't going to come along and institute a tax policy that puts a cap on state and local income ta- state and local taxes. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll always know what my tax refund's going to be and um and everything will be great. You know, cuz uh you know and then and 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 um sometimes those people are like more power to you. You circle stripe painter you. Yeah. Uh, I'll hang that on my wall. And other people are, are, this person's a threat, are feeling like this person's a threat. Um, because they don't understand it, right? It's not logical. 
Well, I think at a deep level, they understand that the, that that it's a kind of rejection of their little fortress in yeah. some way. Yeah, you know, the, the fortress of their lives. That there's a more open life to be lived. Right. But it isn't just a circle and a stripe painter. It's it's anybody who chooses to be. You know, to, I mean, if you think of art as a form of material philosophy, it's anybody who chooses to, you know, talk to the living and the dead. Artists are witches, you know, uh, or warlocks or some kind of thing. You know, they're they they have a they're they're not, you know, just to be a reader is to do that. You know, um, uh, to sort of think about, you know, facts, science, history. Human, uh, humanism um, is, and it can take myriad forms. Painting is just one form, and some, and it's true. It's like some people have, you know, can throw a baseball, you know, a hundred feet uh, or a hundred yards. Other people can't, but some people, and some people feel, you know, respond to painting with this crazy itch. Yeah, you know, um, the the high school art teachers were. Uh, gym teachers in, in the public schools in San Francisco. Um, so that, I really, you know, I, I think we talked about this last week, I really wasn't thinking about being an artist until I was in college and I had a real art teacher, somebody yeah. who looked at Mirandi, you right. know, like everybody in the Bay Area figurative school did. Yeah. And was able to, you know, draw my attention to something that had been on the periphery of my vision all along because I went to museums for entertainment as a kid. Um. New York is full of these people. There's maybe not so many out out on the West Coast. More about their mountain bike, and that's good too. You know, communing with nature. And yeah. All that. But um, uh, but painting was something. You know, painting is something that that, that uh, we understand. You know, for some reason. Definitely. Uh, are we we come to understand even as it sends us signals that we can't quite decode right off the bat. Um, so you can talk about a, a brushy, fleshy painting, but people and and that would seem like opposite of what you do. But in fact, your flat planes are planes of unimaginable density. You know, yeah. The idea is is, is as with icon space, um, those flat planes speak about are you know, basically talk about eternity. You know, they're coming, and you know. If the infinite is as close to you as it is far away, its consistency is like a stick of butter. Right. You know, um, and there we are. Yeah. You know, you're, we're absolutely up against the emanative quality of color in a flat plane. Right. And you know, that's an intuition before it's a it's a it's a sentence. You know, to describe it, it's it's, it's an intu- it's an intuition before it's a thought. Yeah, um, and uh, some people just have those intuitions. I mean, it's, if you were sitting where I'm sitting right now, and I'm looking at <laughs> the sh- the shadow of the gate and the concrete and the wa- and and the blue sky and a cloud here and a cloud here, like I'm a greet, you know, I'm you know I'm just the you you know your paintings are actually being reflected by the world I'm seeing. Right. Yeah, it's funny because in that direction. You can't see it, but there's a there's a satellite dish. There's some pink graffiti, some trees poking up, yeah. some clouds. It's like the same, yeah, you know, same sort of thing. And we're we're just sort of used to translating that, yeah. 
like reflecting. That's why I love ukiyo-e so much because it just kind of reflected the world. Have you seen that uh, uh, Miss Hokusai film on Netflix? No. It's all about Hokusai's daughter. I've it's heard an, of it's it. It's an anime. It's wonderful. Um, it really gets at you know what it's like to be a painter. I'll check it out. Is yeah. it on Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix. It's, Perfect. Yeah. You'll it's nightly it. watching. Today. Yeah, yeah. Miss Hokusai. I love Hokusai. I can't. I always wonder. Do you think when he was doing those prints, he ever thought that they would be on mugs, and placemats, <laughs> and T-shirts, and all over the world? Um, no, of course not. He no. didn't. He didn't live in that era. Yeah. But he, but I think that you know he knew he was making prints that would be um, mass consumption. Right? That would be you know for that era. Yeah. They, they were directed towards mass consumption. Um. What passed for mass consumption? Yeah. Uh, of course, it's a really aesthetic culture. Everything has to be, you know, sort of just so. Definitely. Um, what they part of the reason I had a show, my last show, well, two shows ago here, was called "In Praise of Shadows" after that book. Wonderful. Yeah. And um, you know, it's about like what you don't see or the little moments that you usually don't pick up on you know the paying attention to those little things that other people might not really care about or see with all the noise going on i love that kind of yeah idea, you yeah know? i know it makes i feel like that makes me unconventional in a sense or you know not of the times <laughs> like where seven second videos and memes and stuff is kind of the you know the palette du jour but I don't know. There's there's something to be said about that quiet slowness and that peacefulness, and you know, like in the Hiroshige prints where the papers are floating in the wind, things like that. Just I, for some reason, that's what I that's what I get off on. Which is also <laughs> you know, which is also a, a funny sort of nod to ephemerality. Yeah, because these are going on paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Well, Hokusai comes off as a kind of a monster in this movie. In this oh, movie. really? Yeah, uh, but she's she's a she is a his daughter, um, and uh, she's you know an amazing painter in her own right. And uh, but the you know the family has a hard you know Hokusai abandoned his family you know to be you know to, to, for the call of painting and carousing and painting some more yeah and uh then i think of like you know in the ninth street women grace hardigan giving up you know giving up her son you know people look at that and they just go how can anybody do that and you know you just don't know you don't know i mean yeah. there's you you have a if you have a calling it's it's wonderful and horrible at the same time right well you mentioned earlier Guernica it's my favorite painting of all time and you Picasso, weren't here when it lived in when it when it lived in New York yeah that was something I can imagine you could just go see it you know I mean now you now it lives in Madrid and right. you can go see it too yeah uh, uh, but uh, well that, you could see the tapestry at the UN yes yes <laughs> not the same but tapestries are great too yeah. I mean I, it's very cool have you ever thought about making weavings? I have, but I just don't have the... Or I haven't beaten down that path. 
I, sh- I'll, I should introduce you to my weaver at some point when you have something that you want, you want to transcribe. You have a weaver? Yeah, in Oaxaca. Nice. And he works for, he works for Polly and, and uh, um, other people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would be very cool to see the work. And he's great. He's great. I mean, there's a, he lives in a town in Oaxaca where the whole town is weavers. And this guy Hieronimo works with modern, you know, contemporary artists. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's got like eleven looms. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I could see that being. I, I could see something like that being the tapestry. Yeah. Even just the door floating. Um, but also the space is so. And it'd be funny to sort of see that pictorial space transcribed into right. Fabric into fabric, yeah. yeah. Well, into yeah, into wove into, you know, a, a, I guess the Spanish word is tapeta. Yeah. Um, that might be something cool to do. Yeah, yeah. Add that to the list. Add that to the the bucket, <laughs> uh, the near bucket list. Right, right. Well, um, do you have to go pick up your kid? I do soon. Um, did we talk last time about the stuff you got going on? You you know, your website and like where people can find you and all oh, that stuff? Um, okay. Let's um, plug you. Uh, you can... Uh, uh, my page at Lennon Weinberg um, is... The first thing that comes up, if you Google my name, which is P-H-E-N, um, with an F-A-L-L as opposed to a P-H-A-L. Right. Uh, uh, is... Uh, Usually the Lennon Weinberg page artists, and they have a. It's wonderfully laid out with you know uh, previous shows and all the uh, uh, not all the reviews, but a lot of the re- you know you know articles um, and um, some and a link to the American Academy in Rome where I did a show that mixed both wall paintings and canvases, and then uh, there's also a website just stephenwestfall.com that is at this point largely devoted to uh, the uh, public work, yeah. the, uh, the public art, um, including it's very up to date with the, with the subway shots and everything. Um, and that's going to change, right? Uh, because uh, after 30 years, uh, Jill is going to close her doors at the end of May. Um, and uh, I, what I anticipate one is that those pages are never lost. They'll still be there. But some of that information will, from her website will migrate to my website. and um, So it'll be visible. It'll be visible. And it'll be visible anyway. Like the, the Lennon Weinberg page will still be visible. Yeah. Um, what and, about your writing? And uh, Is that le- scattered? or it's, I, 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 I'm due to write something else for Art in America. It's been a year, but I, I had a big article called Slow Painting. I read it. In Art in America in, in you know, February of last year. It's a year old, but it, you know, six artists. It, des- it describes, um, I guess, the, um, the agency of time yeah. in painting and the paradox of it being still and being something that an artist works on for a long time, even if they don't appear to. Um, and Susan Freecon, John Zurier, Jessica Dickinson, and uh, um, uh, several others, uh, via uh, MacArthur Binion, 
and who else? There's one more, and then Petrus Christus, um, and uh, at the end it closes with Petrus Christus. Yeah. Uh, uh, so. I was happy to write that. It was like curating a show in my mind. When you when I write about a number of artists to make a point, but usually I write about single artists. So I've written about Lois Dodd. I've yeah. written about Neil Welliver. Neil Welliver could be in that show, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, that sort of dumb flatness, the way everything is constructed, all that simultaneously with that sense that everything is made from the brush, right? You know, um, mental note, mental yeah, include Neil uh, and. Uh, I'll write more. I'll write yeah. more. It's just been a really busy time with... with um, I had a show last year. I had the subway uh, station and then... Uh, what do you know? So if anyone listening wants to see this, the subway piece in person... 30th Avenue Station in Queens um, on the NW line. Yeah. And it's spectacular. It, it on During the day, it functions as stained glass and at night, it's projected out into the street. And you can see it from blocks away. And it's kind of... Um, uh, people seem to like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It feels good when you do something in the city that, you know, people can just interact with over and over. It's, I think it's the largest, um, I think we mentioned last week, it's probably the, the overall, it's probably the largest public artwork, uh, artworks project involving a number of artists um, uh, since the WPA. Yeah. If you think of, how many artists are involved with the MTA right now? Um, it's and you know I like some of it better than than others, uh, but there's some great pieces, and uh, you know hopefully they'll be there for a long, long time. Yeah. And uh, that's again we have as painter as artists we have such a funny relationship to time. Definitely, it's funny to imagine in these sort of premonitions of a, of, of climate apocalypse the <laughs> idea that. Uh, uh, the streets will be empty, but you know, you know, the artwork will still be right. there. We'll still be around. slowly deteriorating, and then, um, like Flushing Meadows, yes, and then the jungle will reclaim it. Um, yeah, right. But uh, hopefully, that won't be the case. Right. Let's hope not. Well, it was great doing a part two. Yeah, a real pleasure. Thanks real pleasure to do over. it in in in, uh, in the environment of your work, which you know i've known for so long and it's just great to sort of see things in progress see things finished see things you know i I never feel a painting's finished in the studio it's always finished it's always finished where it's meant to go it needs the wall or wherever it ends up to be exactly finalized and then 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 it's like ding yeah you know right and that wall is potentially mutable like you you know a collector could come and take it off this wall and put it on this wall right or an institution or something but uh and one thing I've always talked to my students about was like imagine the space your painting's going in. Yeah. You know, have a have a, you know, room dimensions variable. For this upcoming show in the fall, for the first time I made a 3D model of the gallery. Yeah. Exactly. I never did that. It's all digital, but I can put in my I'll be able to put everything in there and see it. I always say like, oh, I'd just like to go to the space and move it around, and I do, and I'm sure it'll change, but you know, I want to envision how it all looks. So, yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, this is the first. This is the first two parter in two different studios. So thanks for. Oh, that's great! I'm, I'm glad to be. That's avant garde. That is avant garde. <laughs> two guys with two microphones <laughs> talking about hypothetical group shows in two different in two different <laughs> locations. It's a movable feast. Right. Well, anyway, this is great, Brian. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. All right. Vision is recorded, produced, edited, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more images from the podcast that I do on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. You can see more images of my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors and the New York Studio School for their support of the podcast. And thank you to all the listeners.